Age to Practice, applying educational reading in the classroom. Join in the conversation using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. From Page to Practice is a podcast focusing on the application of educational reading in the classroom. Each episode features one book or article, my reflections and the thoughts of my guests on its use and impact in the classroom. Some episodes may also feature an introduction from the author. Hi and welcome to the last episode of From Page to Practice in 2020. It's episode 7 of series 2 and today we're looking at Mary Myatt's The Curriculum from Gallimorphy to Coherence. Today I'm pleased to be bringing you an introduction from Mary herself and then the reflections of five readers, none of whom managed the standard five to ten minutes, so I think that that already speaks volumes about the power of this book. So without further ado, seeing as this is set to be a bumper-length episode, we'd better get on with it. Hello there, I'm Mary Myatt and I'm delighted to be sharing with you some of the ideas behind the book I wrote, the curriculum, Gallimaufry to Coherence, and what I hope colleagues get from it. So I was at a conference in late 2016 in Bath, and I was talking to Tim Oates, who led on the review of the national curriculum, um, and asked Tim whether he knew of a book that pulled together all the ideas and all the thinking and all the information that there was about the latest version of the national curriculum, which was uh, published in 2013 with implementation uh, for 2014. And the reason I asked him this was because I couldn't find anything that brought all the material together, that synthesized it in one place. And he didn't know of a book either. Uh, At the end of my session, Uh, at this conference, I asked the audience whether they knew of a book uh, that brought it all together. So nearly 300 people there and uh, no one was able to suggest anything. So I just jokingly said, well, I think I probably need to write one. So I started writing it in um, early 2017 um, alongside my normal work that I was engaged in and um, finished it, and it was published in June 2018. Um, The reason it was called Gallimaufry to Coherence was because I was struggling to find a subtitle that captured the scope of what I was trying to do, which was to bring together and synthesise, as I said, the main things that were happening across the curriculum, all in one place. And so I um, was talking to a great friend of mine, Sharon Artley, who's also a colleague, and I said to her, um, Sharon, this, um, this book, it's about to go to press. They're just finalising the front cover. So I know it's going to be called The Curriculum, and I know I need coherence in there because that's been a thread going all the way through, but it just seems to me that incoherence to coherence is just a bit weak. Uh, so... I just wondered if we could brainstorm some some ideas. And she said, well, my husband was doing a crossword puzzle yesterday and one of the answers was Gallimaufry. 
I said, oh, Sharon, I think that might be the answer. Let me just check. I had to get onto Google to make sure that it was what I thought it was, which is a melange, um, a muddle, just a tangle of things. And I realised then that was the word that I was looking for to be the subtitle for the book, the, the curriculum. So it always makes me laugh when people say, oh, we had to look that up. Yeah, well, so did the author. Um, so it's it's caused quite a lot of um, laughter uh, and uh, over the, uh, since it's been published that a lot of people have had to check that and I reassure them, so did I. Um, so that really sort of summarises what I was trying to get at, that there just seemed to be lots and lots of information, but where were the threads drawing it together? So that's the reason that I started the book. So what did I include in the book? Well, I included some of the things that seem to me to have the greatest impact on children's learning if we're thinking about designing a curriculum. So I drew from the insights from cognitive science. I was thinking here about what uh, those findings were saying that could indicate, not as a three-line whip, but give us some insights into what would make a strong curriculum. So I'm just going to share a few threads with you. So one of the things that emerged is that learning is likely to be deeper if we've had to put some effort into it. So human beings are curious. Uh, this is Dan Williams' insight. So human beings are curious, but thinking is hard. But what was interesting was that my own research had found that children enjoy doing difficult, demanding work as long as they know they're going to be supported. They enjoy having material above their pay grade as long as the conditions are characterised by low threat. So I knew that I could draw the cognitive science into the work that I've been doing and continue to do on pupil voice. So that was one thread. Uh, children need challenging, ambitious material to underpin what they're learning. The second insight that came from the cognitive science was the importance of concepts. So, or the big ideas, it turns out that we know more and remember more if we understand a concept or a big idea. So why is that? Well, concepts act as sort of holding baskets for lots of information. So if I understand a concept, it means that new information that relates to that concept is much stickier. So this is really helpful when we're thinking about curriculum planning in that we identify the concepts and the big ideas. And the great news is there's plenty of them, but there aren't too many. Um, so where do we go to find those? Well, the first starting point is the national curriculum document for that subject itself. That's our starting point. And then we can also pull out from the materials that we're using the important ideas that we need to teach explicitly to our children in lots of different concepts and contexts and give them plenty of um, opportunities to talk about them and apply them. So con the, the notion of big ideas and concepts underpinning our curriculum thinking was a second um, insight from the cognitive science. And the third uh, that I'm just going to mention here is the idea that our brains privilege story. Our brains privilege story. So this is a brilliant insight from Dan Willingham, um, and that's his quote. And when he's talk talking about story, he's not just talking about novels, 
fairy tales, he's also referring to high-quality texts, non-fiction, um, and I would also argue poetry and um, other high-quality material. We're likely to know more and remember more if it is located within high-quality stuff. Uh, this is also backed up by um, Stephen Pinker's work, world-renowned cognitive scientist, who says that unconnected facts um, are just like unlinked pages on the web, that our understanding needs to be underpinned by concepts and also by stories. So this is also echoed by uh, Christine Castle's work on the fact that children and indeed adults, when we're learning something new, we need to have some background or what Christine calls the hinterland. This helps to create uh, the scene for the detail of what we're going to be learning. So it's really incredibly helpful to have this insight from cognitive science to support our thinking about curriculum planning. And so I write quite a lot about that in the book. The, the other thing that I think is aligned to this and the other insights is that we need to be going to the original and authentic sources wherever possible. Otherwise, sometimes what gets offered to children in terms of worksheets downloaded from the internet is that it's not putting those cognitive demands on them that really make them think, that the information there is not usually underpinned by the concepts and the big ideas, and so we are missing out on opportunities to deepen children's learning. However, if we know that there are high quality materials from places like the British Museum that can support our teaching, for instance, in uh, history and in English, if we're teaching about one of the ancient Greek myths of Demeter and Persephone, then to go to the high-quality, authentic sources by, from somewhere like the British Museum is going to make that much deeper and much richer. So uh, one of the other things that I did for the book was to uh, have sections at the back for each of the national curriculum areas that um, summarise the big ideas within that curriculum area, really just as starting points with links to the national curriculum documents, but also with at least half a dozen links to high quality source material that is going to be of high quality, accurate, and that our children, if we're going to put those rich materials and demands on them, um, are going to be very effective. So I tried to bring, bring together the theoretical stuff from the cognitive science and tie it up with what does this look like in individual subjects. Um, now, what I found was that uh, quite a few um, teachers have found this helpful. Um, so what are some of the key takeaways in terms of what I hope people take from this work? Well, it's that uh, fewer things in greater depth around the big ideas and high quality texts are more likely to deepen learning than racing through the content. Okay, so what I call the curse of content coverage. If we want children knowing more and remembering more, then we need to be digging deeper and lingering longer around ri really rich material. 
And quite often people say to me, well, there isn't time. But actually, if you look at the national curriculum documents up to the end of Key Stage 3, uh, beyond English, Maths and Science in primary, where it's set out for each year, the foundation subjects across the three stages, we've got quite a lot of flexibility in terms of how we teach those big ideas to children. We can do it across a whole key stage. And uh, when we look at the national curriculum documents, apart from history, because Michael Gove got his hands on that, it's not, they're not overloaded with masses of content that needs to be covered. Um, so we have, I'm, I'm arguing we have got time to do this, particularly when we think about it across a key stage underpinned by con concepts appropriately sequenced, etc. But even in history, I would have to say, I think, uh, I don't think it's overloaded. It's a different question when we get to key stage four, but I'm primarily concerned here with provision from key stage one to key stage three. Um, so the main message, I hope, is fewer things in greater depth, not rushing through um, because we want to deepen children's learning. And if we do that, particularly in the initial stages, it means that we can take things at a faster pace uh, later on. Um, so just to tell you a bit about what's happened since 2018 beyond lockdown is that I was getting a lot of feedback from colleagues in school saying, well, we uh, really want to do more on the curriculum, but we haven't got time. Now, I think we've got to make time, and to make time, it means we've got to cut back on some of the things that are not adding value to children's learning. So uh, I've subsequently written a book, which was published in September 2020, um, called Back on Track, because what we can't do is keep overloading uh, ourselves and our colleagues with doing more and more and more which squeezes out this important work, the development of subject knowledge for all of us, whether we're in primary or secondary. And so uh, in that book, I've given some ideas in terms of what I think colleagues might helpful, might find helpful in terms of uh, taking that deep work uh, carefully into their provision. So colleagues, I hope you found that helpful and um, I'm looking forward to hearing your responses. Um, do feel free to offer critique as well, because it's through respectful disagreement that our own learning moves on. So I'm looking forward to hearing your thoughts. Thank you. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. Thank you, Mary, for that great introduction to your book. The linguist in me especially liked hearing about the title. Just a quick flick through the book shows how it's split into very manageable chunks, which makes it a great read for teachers. I think I need to get my hands on your other books now too. Now it's time for our first reader reflection coming from Francis. Hello, my name is Francis Ashton and I'm an assistant head teacher for teaching and learning and CPD in a secondary school in Oxfordshire. My job role really rotates around classroom practice. But what I've found in the last two or three years is that it's become impossible not to talk about curriculum as well at the same time and where those two roles might have traditionally been quite strictly delineated, separated out, maybe even into two different people. I've found over the last couple of years that that has not been possible, that the really important work that's happened around dialogue around curriculum um, and, and how it is most effectively structured has, has meant that I've had to be part of that and, and be drawn into it, which I found really, really fascinating. 
And I think in terms of this really important book, uh, I'm a really massive fan of annotating. And when I sort of started reading it the first time, had pen in hand, really enthusiastically started to make notes. It got to the point where I just had to put the pen down, really, because I was annotating so much and, and highlighting so much that really it was just, it would just be as, as good to say the whole book is brilliant. There's so much to take out of it. Um, and I think that really what I've taken away from it has been so profound in terms of what we've done at my school and in terms of my own professional practice that it's really nice to have the opportunity to, to talk about that in some more detail. I thought just generally about the book, that the structure itself was incredibly helpful because, you know, starting with those big why questions about why curriculum is so important, the big ideas, the big concepts, and then working through uh, some of the other ideas, going down to that granular sort of subject-specific advice, I thought that was really helpful because it allowed me to to really gauge my own understanding of, of, of what curriculum is and how it best works and then think about it in more finer detail um, as I went on. And obviously as well, the way that Mary was able to link in and triangulate with um, aspects of assessment and teaching and learning um, in such a pithy way was just a really beneficial as well. You know, it's, it's really quite a concise book, but there's an enormous amount to take away from it. And, and what I find is whenever I pick it up or go back and look at a chapter, I, I find I've got something to go away and think about and do, uh, which is always, you know, when you're when you're quite time poor professionally is is really powerful things. So um it really, thinking about the impact on me professionally and on my job role, it, and as I say, it's been pretty profound. And I think if I'm to try and narrow it down to, to maybe even three areas, I think mean, that's quite still quite difficult to do. But I think the first thing I would say is that all of those big ideas about curriculum coherence um, and about what we mean by curriculum in its, in its broadest term, in its purest term, really helped me get a sense of what the ambition for a curriculum would be. And, and as I said at the beginning, really my my job role is about classroom practice. It's about developing teacher expertise, making sure that, that the practices and the pedagogy within the classroom is designed in a way that really helps students to learn effectively. But when you start drawing in understanding of curriculum, you realise that it's just as important what's being taught as how it's being taught, in some ways even more important. So it really helped me to understand that that was time worth spending. And I think before that, I had, to a certain degree, sort of assumed that subject specialists, subject leaders had that in hand as as subject expertise, you know, um, that that wasn't really something as, as someone leading teaching and learning that I needed to think that much about. But when you start thinking about how well students can understand what they're being taught, when you start thinking about whether they're remembering it, how it's linking together, whether those ideas, whether those threshold concepts have been identified um, in a really thoughtful way, you suddenly realise, no, you have to have this conversation with subject leaders. And I think what that meant for us was that we, especially with Key Stage 3, went back to the drawing board a little bit and and really got into the nitty-gritty of why that, why then, with subject leaders. And we did that really through Middle Leader CPD. We found the time to present some of those big ideas that Mary talks about in the book and also from from other people's writing as well and break that down to really share the rationale, you know, that big why of of why it's important to think about this. And then just through very 
carefully paced CPD got leaders thinking about the choices that they'd made in their curriculum, whether there's anything that they wanted to leave out. Um, And I think that idea that Mary talks about of things being useful and beautiful, I think it's a William Morris quote, was really handy as well. And I think it helps subject leaders to think about, make those quite difficult decisions in terms of breadth and depth, to think what is really important here, what are the forming blocks of this subject that's going to help the student become a better geographer or a better historian or whatever subject it might be. So I think that was incredibly helpful. And in fact, a couple of chapters from the book found their way into um, a book that we made, uh, the curriculum handbook, to to guide subject leaders in mapping out that key stage three curriculum, really thinking about depth and breadth and, and making sure that they knew that students were remembering it as well. So I think that was incredibly helpful. And I, when I look in classrooms now and I see the equity of provision as well, those justifications for what have been taught, uh, the, the really careful thought around why this, what next, how do you know, that rigour of thinking is now apparent when I'm just doing, when I'm doing drop-ins that are still based on you know, teacher practice. I'm able to, to see that thinking behind curriculum at the same time, which I think is really powerful. And then I think linked to that, uh, kind of a second main takeaway was all of the great thinking around assessment. And I've I've been thinking quite deeply about assessment for two or three years um, at, at our school. And we've, we've done a lot of work thinking about feedback versus feed forward. We've done away with you know, constant marking, ticking and flicking, um, and done a a really good job, I think, of of replacing that mindset with teachers and thinking about that Dylan William idea of it has to be more work for the recipient than the donor. And I think that is already quite well embedded um, in our school, which which was great. But when I read the chapters on assessment in the book, it helped me think a little bit more about what next for assessment in our school and those kind of practices that are most helpful for for helping students to know what those next steps are. And I I also think it helped us to clarify and do some work around student metacognition, because I think even though we had definitely moved away from giving lots of feedback and lots of marking, maybe we still weren't thinking in in a rigorous way about what the impact is of of when we take in work. I think there were two main things. There was student metacognition, making sure that um, you're sharing what what a success looks like before they attempt a task. You're not kind of getting them to jump straight into it um, and, and then seeing and then giving them some feedback at the end of it. Um, making sure that, that teachers know that it really is that sense of gradual release and modelling really clearly for students what they need to do, making over what we sometimes as teachers keep very covert in terms of the process. And by modelling that, live modelling and that very clearly, you're helping students to internalise that understanding. So I think that there were, it helped us, again through CPD, talk to staff about the, the build-up to a task and how that is almost more important than what you say afterwards um, is is how you plan the the release from uh, teacher instruction through to deliberate independent practice. So that was incredibly beneficial. And then the second part of that is knowing where the gaps are and knowing what to do about it. And that helped us to think very carefully about how assessment informs teaching and how assessment informs uh, 
iterative development of the curriculum and, and looking back and reflecting on what you've taught and thinking what needs to be readdressed. Uh, and again, that links to work that we springboarded into around retrieval and memory and durable learning and having to get students to think a lot to make sure that they're learning and also helped us sort of dovetail with ideas about performance conflation and thinking because they're busy, they're learning. So it was, it, again, it was a really helpful springboard for getting staff to think very carefully about, okay, you, so you've taken this pile of books in, you've had a little look through, you're going to do some whole class feedback. How, what does that actually mean in practice for how you're going to help that learning move forward? And what does it mean for your curriculum? What does it mean for you and your delivery? What does it mean for student understanding? So again, really powerful stuff. And I think then, I suppose closer to what I traditionally was doing in my own job role around teacher practice, the chapters around differentiation, I think it's almost become a slightly dirty word, differentiation. And, and what we mean by it, I think, has evolved and changed over time. I know it certainly has within the sort of 10 years that I've, I've been in teaching. Um, but for me, it's that idea that Mary talks about, about sort of a denial of knowledge and and that important quote about, you know, the best of what has been thought and said, whatever that might mean. And setting that really high expectation for students within the curriculum itself and thinking about what it is that you want to share with students. What is it that all students, regardless of prior attainment level, deserve access to? And then thinking about how you unpack it and how you scaffold it. And I think that 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 way of looking at it has been very, very helpful because I think that there has been a lot of change in how differentiation is seen. There are still a lot of teachers that see it as giving something alternate or something different. Uh, and obviously that has many different implications, not, not least workload. But I think, again, feeding into CPD, we had an entire two years really thinking about responsive teaching and about uh, what Margaret Mulholland refers to as that spiral of support and sort of starting from that baseline of this is what all students will understand and then creating that unpacking through modelling and explanation and uh, and questioning for example uh, to make sure that that students all of the students can access it and that really helped to inform our CPD it informed, in particular, our approach to how we were using success criteria, which we had had in our school for quite a long time, a kind of way of signposting to students how they could be successful in a lesson. But upon reflection, could be seen as limiting expectations. So it really helped us to calibrate, no, that's not working for us anymore. That's not what we are trying to achieve in lessons. And, and we did away with the approach that we were using and replaced it instead with our teaching learning principles, which are all research informed. They're all really about those, those techniques that you use as a teacher with 30 kids in front of you to, to gauge what they know, to know when they need a bit more, know when they need a little bit less um, and, and be really responsive for that. I mean, I could go on for much longer about what, what the book has given me, but I think, like I said, it really is the beauty of it is that whenever I pop back and read another chapter of it, it's just so concise and practical that I'm able to reflect really quickly and think, no, I'm going to have a little think about that now or do something different. So to me, it's, it's just utterly brilliant and uh, a real pleasure. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. 
Thank you for your reflections, Francis. It's really helpful to hear not only your thoughts on what you read, but also what you did with it and how that impacted upon your practice in school. I like that you used the word springboard. That's exactly what I think edgy books should be. The starting point that gives energy to whatever you go ahead and do next. Next up, we're hearing from Laura. Hello, my name is Laura and I'm a head of English at a school on the east coast of England. I'm going to be talking about the book Curriculum from Gallimore Fry to Coherence by Mary Myatt. I'll start by telling you why I chose this book. Um, I was appointed as a head of English about three years ago and when I accepted the position I wanted to make sure that I was informed and keeping up with the latest research and literature around curriculum and pedagogy Um, and curriculum in particular seemed like the best place for me to start. It kind of tapped into my desire to strengthen the provision of our curriculum within the school It was already strong um, and I knew that we had uh, engaging schemes of learning um, and it was an enjoyable curriculum to teach, but I wanted to be able to review what we already had objectively. I'd been a teacher of that curriculum for quite some time and with the appointment, I was now a leader of it and I felt I needed to be a little bit more critical and and have a, a better overview um, of the curriculum and what we were teaching and how and why. Looking at the chapter headings as well also tapped into a lot of what I was um, wanting to review and get a firmer grasp on. So things like planning, assessment and feedback, the instruments of the curriculum, which is things like questioning and knowledge knowledge organisers, etc. There's a section on cross-curricular learning and a a section on leadership. But there were also subject commentaries, which I felt were... um, kind of took that broad and generic overview of curriculum and made it a little bit more relevant and specific, which as a new head of English, I felt would be specifically beneficial to me. Um, So what I will do is I will summarise the uh, biggest takeaways from this book. And I will just start with a couple of caveats. And the first one is that I actually haven't finished reading the book yet. There are a couple of chapters that I haven't got around to reading yet. And I imagine that once I do, I'll have more takeaways. But at the minute, the the chapters that I've really focused on were the ones on curriculum, assessment and feedback, planning, um, obviously literacy. Um, So... Those are kind of the areas that I've got my takeaways from. So, and I, and I anticipate I will have more once I've finished reading the book. And the second caveat is that um, the majority of the uh, of the revisions and the the things that I'm going to talk about putting into place, we only really did um, last September, and of course we didn't get to the end of that academic year. So I can't say that we've had a, a, a massive turnaround with our um, our results, our this, the progress that our students make, because obviously we haven't had had time to embed them. We haven't had time to, to, to review and tweak and actually have a go at many of these things. So just bear that in mind as well. So I'll um, I'll start by discussing what was said in the book and then take it from there in terms of what we then did 
with with that learning. So one of the things that um, Mary Myatt discusses in the book, which was the biggest area for me, was curriculum organisation um, and the topics surrounding curriculum coherence and taking a conceptual approach to the curriculum so that topics and skills and ideas that continually crop up become a thread throughout your curriculum and you find that you actually have a a narrative that runs through your whole five-year plan and 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 certain thing and you and you start to see your curriculum as a continuum rather than as um separated units of learning which was kind of what I felt our curriculum was uh, I knew that we had good schemes of work I knew that we had engaging schemes of learning and we were teaching good stuff but I also felt that we were kind of getting to the end of a unit doing our assessment and then putting that unit to bed and moving on to the next one um, so I felt that the the learning around curriculum coherence and this idea that your curriculum was a continuum was particularly uh, influential. So what we did was we redesigned our curriculum to better focus on concepts and themes. And we didn't start from scratch. This wasn't a complete major overhaul. But what we did was we re- we worked around what we currently taught and what our current texts were, what we had in the English cupboard. Um, so, for example, we dropped Blood Brothers down. We we used to teach it at Key Stage 4 as an exam text um, and we dropped it down into our Year 9 curriculum and we, we used it to study things like the representation of family, especially the representation of women, with a view to that concept then being central to our study of Macbeth and an inspector calls in Key Stage 4. And also using it to reteach what we taught about the representation of women in year eight in our text of Mice and Men. So that theme then ran through not just a unit or a year group, but it crossed it over into the next key stage um, because what we were finding was that students were being taught the concepts or they were being taught skills, but they were not connecting the learning from one unit of work to the next. Uh, So we tried to reshuffle our curriculum in an attempt to really show students that what they were learning now, they'd already been taught previously or they would need it in future learning. Um. One of the things that Mary Myatt discusses in the book is the idea of knowing what the big picture surrounding your curriculum is. Um, and for us, we we really considered our geographical factors um, and our location. We are we're a small school on the east coast of England. Um, we're very geographically isolated from the rest of the country and that is reflected somewhat in our students background knowledge particularly things like their vocabulary their reading ages Um, so we wanted to make sure that our big picture our um our geographical context was really relevant to our curriculum 
So what we started with was looking again at those long-term plans and those medium-term plans and identifying the key conceptual and disciplinary vocabulary for each scheme of learning. So we didn't just teach subject-specific vocabulary, we really looked at the social issues and wider concepts that we felt we were teaching through our curriculum that would be very relevant to our students and try to make that really explicit in the way that we were teaching the concepts and the vocabulary surrounding it. A really important area for me was the discussion that Mary Meyer presented around sequencing lessons and the uh, face-off, if you like, between planning a sequence of lessons and writing individual lesson plans. And the argument being that planning the sequence of lessons is more important than writing the individual lesson plans. And that often writing lesson plan and lesson plan and lesson plan can get into the way of the bigger flow of the learning so what we did was we we really stripped back the planning in our medium term plans. So I, we, we tried to avoid creating a lesson one, do this, lesson two, do this. Um, we didn't really want a lesson by lesson scheme of learning. And instead, we've put in place what, what I've called a recommended teaching sequence, which provides teachers with effectively a route to take through the unit um, and that is punctuated by a series of core lessons, which was a, an idea that I got from Jennifer Webb's book, um, How to Teach English Literature. Uh, and we initially started with five core lessons and we've now gone to seven across the scheme of learning that covers usually about a term. Um, and those core lessons have to be taught by every teacher to every class and around those core lessons, there's greater fluidity, there's greater freedom of um, choice for teachers. Um, it allows teachers to be more responsive in their teaching. So, for example, if they feel that they need to spend longer on the core lesson to make sure that it's taught well um, and the students understand it and have learned it before they move on, then it allows for that freedom. Um Likewise, if they feel that an area needs to be skipped to come back to later, then again, that recommended teaching route guides the teacher through the unit and provides them with a direction and it provides them with um, the, the core lessons, i.e. the absolute non-negotiables, this has to be taught, um, but with a greater degree of um, freedom and, and an opportunity to explore the subject in response to how the students are, are, um, are handling it at the time. That's also linked into one of the things that Mary Myatt discusses, which is curriculum products, which is effectively the things that the students say, do and, on, and write that shows their learning. Um, and she also discusses this concept of beautiful work, that the idea that students are allowed to draft and redraft and really become um, and really produce something that is finished and polished. And in that process, also developing expertise. Um, and again, what we did as a result of that was we, we tried to strip back the curriculum content so that we weren't um, over teaching 
lots and lots and lots of different things. But we were giving teachers the time to teach, check, reteach, and then prepare and revise for assessments, which we'd never really done before. Our assessments were effectively and usually an end of term thing. Um, uh, and and what we did as a result was we we established key outcomes for each scheme of learning. So we said uh, these are the these are the major pieces of work. These are the major outcomes that we want our students to produce. And we tried to keep that to maybe four or five across a whole term. Um, and that fed into our assessment as well. So what we tried to do was. Um, redraft our marking policy or marking and feedback policy so that teachers know that the the key outcomes, those named pieces of work on the medium term plan are the things that are diagnostically marked by the teacher that then feeds into the next stage of the learning. Um, or it might even be that before you get to that key outcome, you are reflecting on the learning that's happened so far so that when that key that key outcome, the students sit down and do that key outcome, um, they're prepared, they've, they've reflected, they've, they've um, gathered all of that learning. And that was also something that Mary Myatt discussed in, in the book, was that... Um, our assessment can effectively be done through talk um, and much assessment is responsive teaching and questioning uh, and that we we tend to think of feedback as being marking and, and all too often that, that feedback is generic and imprecise. And we also looked at um, the fact that marking and reporting on progress specifically in a world after levels has become a little bit tricky in the sense that um, the key stage three levels had grown to be a measure of progress that teachers were relying on to track progress. And actually, they were never meant to be that. Um, the levels for key stage two and key stage three were only ever meant to be best fit indicators to describe an end of key stage standard. So that had to feed into our assessment as well. Is, is we were checking on the progress that the students were making, not necessarily what they were attaining in that piece of work. And that again was helped by us thinning out the amount of marking and the amount of assessment that we were doing and the and the um the level of importance that we were placing on that assessment. So we've we've tried to move to um a lot more light touch. So we have for key stage four, for example, once a week we have something called do it now tasks, which is very short um five questions that are effectively used to promote recall and um, retrieval practice. Uh, and they're a really great way of assessing how your students are remembering information and, and making links and joining the dots. Uh, we do a lot more multiple choice quizzes. We do a lot more whole class feedback, live marking, self and peer assessment, um, quizzing in general, 
and only really marked marking in the old fashioned sense of the word do we really expect to be completed by staff, by teachers on those key outcomes? Because that then informs what happens next in terms of um, getting the students to develop their work and, and act on that feedback. Uh, we've also this year started a trial of the no more marking and comparative judgment method of marking, um, which allows all staff to gain, to gain a really comprehensive overview of the quality of work that is being produced across a whole cohort, not just in their class, but across the whole year group. And that's been really um, insightful in terms of allowing us to see where our pitfalls are in our teaching and learning. We also decided to set our appraisal targets around questioning so that that could be um, a method for really touching in with what students are learning and how they're learning it and is it sticking. Um, and then the last thing really um, is the discussion that Mary Meyer had surrounding um reading and specifically reading for pleasure within the English specific subject commentary um, where she says that um, through reading in particular pupils have a chance to develop culturally, emotionally, intellectually, morally, socially and spiritually. Um, so we really wanted to put the texts that we are reading with the students under a bit of a microscope and decide whether or not we needed to keep them, could we replace them and we did in a few in a few examples we've we've replaced some texts for something that's a bit more modern um more more diverse uh taps into those like i was talking about earlier those bigger pictures that that, that those wider concepts that our students need to be aware of um, so we we've considered things like the Black Lives Matter movement, injustice, poverty, social responsibility, um, post-traumatic stress disorder. And we've really thought about how those big themes and those big concepts that are evident quite clearly in the key stage four texts we teach could then be um, tracked back through texts that we teach at key stage three, which means that when we do need the students to step up into that demanding GCSE style learning, they are prepared and they know the concepts and they know the themes and they know and they have the skills because they've been repeatedly taught them throughout their their time in our school. As I said earlier, the, the big caveat is that all of the things that I have been discussing are a work in progress. They're, they're not built in yet. Um, I, I can't say that they've clicked. They definitely need reviewing. And I imagine that that review will become something a little bit more long term as well, that we will be constantly reviewing. But that's good. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I wanted to read that book is so that we can be a little bit more critical in our review of our curriculum and our offer to make sure that we are providing something that is really strong and engaging and challenging and purposeful for our students. Okay, um, that's about it. I hope that's been helpful. I hope that some of the things that I have said have um, tapped into your own priorities. Um, thank you very much. You're listening to From Page to Practice. 
Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag pagepracticepodcast. Thank you, Laura, for your insights into the book and how you've taken that reading and used it to make a difference to your practice, not only for yourself, but for colleagues too. Next, we are hearing from Nikki. Hi, my name's Nikki McGee and I'm the Subject Specialist Lead for Religion and Philosophy at the Inspiration Trust out in the east of England. And I'm going to talk about the Mary Myatt curriculum book and how it's affected my practice in the classroom. I actually read the Mary Myatt book when it was first released, so quite a few years ago, and it was the beginning of my journey of being obsessed with all things curriculum really. It was the first time that I had thought really carefully about how to craft an entire curriculum and it feels quite odd to say that now quite a few years later um, when I have grown so much as a result of reading books like Mary Myatt's but previously I had planned individual schemes of work And whilst a lot of thought and care had gone into crafting individual lessons, I hadn't really thought very much about how that scheme of work fitted into my curriculum as a whole, um, going from Key Stage 3 up to Key Stage 5. And now that I'm part of a a trust that goes from Key Stage 1 to Key Stage 5, I have to think about my curriculum as part of an even bigger picture. Um, And as I say, it feels a little bit odd to admit that I hadn't really thought about um, the bigger picture and the sequencing of curriculum very much. But I don't think I'm alone in that if we go back sort of five, six, seven years, which is the timescale that I'm talking about. So in terms of in the classroom, I think one of the biggest impacts was that I really started to value the the knowledge that my subject has to offer and the value it just has in itself. When you teach a subject like RE, you have a tendency to be quite defensive, um, even apologetic about what you're trying to deliver. Um, you know, you buy all the all the guff that you're told really that kids don't like RE and so you almost try to hide the knowledge in um, whizzy activities and um, amusing starters and examples from footballers and pop music and I was coming to the realisation that this didn't really work um, and I wanted to change and reading Mary Myatt's book um, really spurred that on and that idea that I was teaching really, really valuable knowledge that had value in itself and that I really didn't need to apologise for that. And so I became much, much bolder in the fact that the knowledge took centre stage. And again, saying that now, six, seven years later, feels a bit daft, but that was a big move for me. And I suspect lots of others in lots of subjects, but especially in RE. And I actually noticed that my engagement went up in lessons because children are not daft and they know when you're trying to smuggle in the learning. They know when you're trying to, you know, hide behind with the activities that are a bit meaningless. And so for me, that was the big first change in the classroom, that I wasn't trying to hide the knowledge and that I was very sort of knowledge focused and stripped everything else back just to focus on that knowledge. 
Linked with that, Mary Myatt talks about that children like challenge and that children like difficulty. And I have certainly found that that is definitely the case. And so once I had stripped away, you know, the the whizzy activities and children running around the room looking for things, um, pop music starters, um, you know, a footballer might have said something vaguely relevant to RE and I built a whole lesson around it. Once I had abandoned all of that stuff, I had time to get into the difficulties and the complexities of my subject and the children respond to that. They enjoy doing stuff that is really, really hard. I presently am teaching um, just year seven. I'm launching RE at my school and I have set eight for RE. And at the moment we are studying Greek philosophy And when I started the unit and I got this class, I I did think to myself, I don't know whether they're going to be able to cope with this. But they did. We had to perhaps go a little slower. We had to perhaps have lots of repetition. We had to break that knowledge down into lots of bite-sized chunks and practice things again and again. But by the end of the unit... My set eight students had covered the same knowledge as my set one students. Now, the set eight students might not have scored the same number of marks in the the exam. Of course, they hadn't. But they had been given the opportunity to wrestle and engage with really, really difficult content. And they knew that. And they felt respected because of it. And at the end of the unit, one of the students kind of hovered around at the end of a lesson and said to me, I feel really, really clever in RE, Miss, because she knew that she was being asked to engage with stuff that was difficult. And so now I'm really open with my students and I say, this is difficult. This is stuff that my A-level students sometimes do. And they love They love that challenge. Now, that doesn't mean that what we do is we take A-level syllabuses and we we deliver it to key stage three. That, That would be folly. But it does mean that we seek out challenge for our students and we're honest about it rather than trying to hide it away. Also, Mary Myatt talks a lot about etymology. And in my experience, students find this fascinating and it's handy for a number of reasons. Firstly, I love that it creates a fascination with language in your classroom. So recently with my year sevens, we were looking at the meaning of monotheism and polytheism. So we were taking those words apart and looking at the roots. And I was asking them to tell me other words they could think of that had mono or poly at the beginning of them. And I love watching them rack their brains and look for those words. I also love that sometimes they say to me, Miss, is this an example of this? And I don't know, so I have to look it up. And I love that idea of me and the class coming together and, you know, learning something new or finding something out. But by giving children the tools to decode language, you're enabling them to go away and do that for themselves. You're giving them really, really valuable tools to broaden their vocabulary. 
but also you're helping them understand key concepts. So Mary Myatt uses the example of incarnation, for example, in religious education and unpacking the etymology of that word. When you do that, as well as understanding the word, you help them understand the concept of the incarnation to understand key Christian beliefs. And in turn, you might then go to reincarnation in Hinduism and they can make the links and you can talk about the similarity and the difference. So etymology is definitely something I have been making much more use of um, in my own teaching. We were talking, or I was talking a little while ago, about expressing, looking for challenge and also not hiding difficulty and making the knowledge the centre of your lesson. So what's being learnt rather than the withy activities. And she, Mary Might also talks about um, shallow learning and that in the past we've had a tendency to focus on the skills rather than the knowledge. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that the skills have got no place, but you need the knowledge in place for the students to, to practice the skills, otherwise it's just an empty activity. And in a, an attempt to have more depth, um, I have been spending whole lessons with students um, unpacking key religious texts so that they can then apply those texts in different contexts. Now in the past what we would have done is we might have very quickly um, read a story, so the creation stories in Genesis or the parable of the sheep and goats or a psalm and really really quickly read it and then moved on and then spent quite a lot of time talking about, I don't know, whether it was true or not and what it's saying to us in the modern day. But we hadn't really understood the original story. And so I've completely flipped that on its head. And I will spend an hour with students looking at one story. And so looking at the historical context of the story, looking at the language in the story, looking at the etymology of the language in the story, looking at the community that produced that story. And then when they have all that in place... We could then go on and look at, you know, their interpretation, etc. of the story. But this produces in the long term much, much deeper learning than simply whizzing from one story to another and doing so in a, in a really, really shallow way. So, for example, in a GCSE RE class where we look at issues like same-sex relationships... You know, I would previously have looked at texts quite briefly and then spent a really, really long time talking about their views and them evaluating a text that they didn't really know in the first place. When I switched that on its head, we looked at a maximum of two, three stories but we looked at the context of those stories. We looked at biblical commentaries. We really, really studied the language. And the students found that much, much more interesting. And the quality of their answers was much, much better as a result. 
a further um, piece of advice that Mary might give that's particularly relevant to my subject, but I suspect all, is um, she quotes Willingham talking about humans being hardwired for stories. For a subject like RE, but I suspect any subject, particularly English and the humanities, we are a subject built on stories. And I loved that that gave me the permission to make those stories, to make texts, almost the centre of my lessons. Um, and so whereas in the past I might have tried to, you know, smuggle in the, the odd Bible text, um, but have spent much more of the lesson talking about different things. Now, as I said previously, I would make the text, I would make the story the centre of that. And stories are really powerful because, you know, very young children can use stories to access quite difficult concepts. I have a four-year-old boy and I'm always struck by when we have stories at bedtime, his ability to remember those stories, so he never lets me get away with skipping a page when I'm tired, but also his ability to interpret those stories. So with very young children, I think stories are very, very important for enabling them to access quite challenging concepts. Um, so things like truth and, and justice, etc. But also helping them remember that detailed knowledge that they can then build on in the future. But I also like the idea of not studying lots of stories briefly but revisiting the same stories again and again for different topics. So for example in RE we might use the story of Rama and Sita which children love um, but really really get to know that story and so we can use it when we teach about bravery. We can use it um, when we want to teach about attitudes to men and women. We can use it in ethics when we want to teach about duty. We can use it in Hindu beliefs when we want to teach about the avatars of Vishnu. And so it means that students get a really rich experience of one story rather than flitting from one thing to another and it all becoming um, a bit of a mess really. Linked with stories, and again, it feels a bit odd to, to say this now, sort of five, six, seven years down the line, but I hadn't really thought enough about vocabulary and whether the students understood the vocabulary that was being used in the lesson. And so now in every lesson, I will pre-teach vocabulary. So I will make sure that students understand that the keywords in the lesson that might be new to them. And I think it's really careful, really important rather, not to make assumptions that students know the meanings of words. I'm often surprised when I have a word that to me um, seems quite a common usage word. So a word like morality, but the students don't know what it means. And again, you're really empowering them if you take the time to pause, stop and teach the meaning of that word and help the students use it in context because then they will use it in future lessons. But also insisting that they use the word. So when we are, for example, answering questions in class, you know, I will say to a student, I think you can give me a better word for that. 
you know, what word would be better to use? And so picking up their language, not just in their written work, but also in their, their, their spoken work, in their oral contributions to lessons. Mary Myatt also talks about um, beautiful, authentic resources. And I've actually listened to Mary Myatt talk um, quite a few times in person um, about an infamous um, mosque worksheet from a certain company. And the first time that she mentioned this worksheet, I cringed because my department were using a similar worksheet and we were quite happy about it. It was a not particularly well photocopied, um, black and white, very simple drawing of a mosque and the students were labelling um, the different parts of the mosque. And of course, there's nothing wrong really with the students being able to use the word for the different parts of the mosque. That can then enable them to understand how the mosque expresses Islamic beliefs. I'm all for that. But I think there could have been a better way that we could do it. And so inspired by Mary Myatt, I try as much as possible to use... Um, original artefacts. Now, often that has to be a photograph, but rather than presenting students with a badly photocopied black and white diagram of a mosque, let's have a look at some photographs or video footage of real mosques. And that now is often where my wow factor comes into lessons. It's not in some kind of whizzy starter. It's in using beautiful images. You know, it could be um, a page from an ancient text that's written in calligraphy and beautifully decorated. It could be taking my students on a virtual tour of a place of worship. It could be a photograph of an artefact that we've zoomed into to, to get the detail and Mary Myatt's really encouraged me to think carefully about how I use my whiteboard because my whiteboard enables me to show students these really big images and so I want to show them the best images possible. Also on that scheme of work we used to have students speed building mosques from you know junk modelling um, and again, after reading Mary Myatt, we dropped that and we spent more time looking at real mosques, more time having challenging discussions um, about why mosques look the way that they did, giving some historical context and less time having students, um, you know, sellotaping stuff together that really wasn't a great use of learning time. Mary Myatt also talks about um, teacher knowledge and about CPD. And this is something that I am really, really passionate about. And I think that if there's one thing that students love to see, it's a teacher talking with real authority about their subject. And something else that children have an entitlement to is to read quality pieces of scholarly writing about that subject. But as schools, we need to make time to make that happen. So we need CBT time, 
CPD, that was hard to say, time devoted to subject knowledge, but also devoted to our subject and how we're going to teach that knowledge. That has really affected the way that I lead my subject. Um, I'm really lucky at Inspiration that we have the role of subject specialist lead. So I have time out of the classroom to think about this kind of stuff. But I think as subject leaders, it's really important that we think about how are we helping our teachers in the classrooms build their subject knowledge and doing so in a realistic way. So something I've been doing for the teachers in our trust who teach RE is building um, banks of books and videos to watch and saying, so for example, if you want to learn more about situation ethics, you could read this, that's five minutes. You could read this chapter, that's an hour. You could watch this um, YouTube video, that's 30 minutes and making it realistic and then it will happen. I also think that many of us became teachers because we love our subject. That was definitely the case for me. I loved studying theology and reading about it. And so I love teaching about it. And the more that I have engaged with my subject knowledge, the happier and more fulfilled I have felt as a teacher. And there's a payoff to that in the classroom. Every now and again, a student will say to me, you really love this stuff, don't you, miss? And I go, yes, I do. And you know what? I go home and I read about it too. Um, And I think students deserve to have passionate subject specialists in their classroom. But if we're going to ask teachers to read and learn more, other stuff has to drop. And Mary Myatt, for me, was one of the individuals that was leading the clarion call, again, when this book was first released, about a need for a sensible approach to marking and feedback. And I don't mark anymore. I just give whole class feedback. And I think it's really powerful. It has an impact. The students know that I read everything that they write. They know that I will pick up on the great things that they do and that I will pick up on the mistakes and the misconceptions. It gives us time to go back and look and reflect and improve the work that they did rather than them ignoring the comment that I've written and then moving on and nothing changes. But also as a subject lead, it frees up time. And I would say all of that time that gets freed up should be dedicated to planning and to enhancing our subject knowledge. So it was a joy to go back and to look at my original notes um, from reading Mary Myatt's book a few years ago. And also it It showed to me how far we have come in the past few years in terms of thinking about curriculum as a whole rather than individual lessons. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag pagepracticepodcast. Thank you, Nikki, for your thorough reflection. I loved all the discussion of challenge and how your students have risen to it and enjoyed it. Your discussion of etymology and vocabulary reminds me of Alex Quigley's Closing the Vocabulary Gap, which was covered in a very early episode of From Page to Practice. In fact, there's an episode on his latest book, Closing the Reading Gap, coming up in the spring. 
I hope your reflection will be useful to many others, not just RE teachers, as they think about all the ways that you've adapted your practice and how it could apply to them. Our next contribution comes from Rachel. Hi, I'm Rachel Higginson and thanks to Page and Practice for including me in um, commenting on the curriculum book, um, Gallimorphy to Coherence um, by Mary Myatt. Um, made me chuckle when I had to talk about this book because um, when it first came out, I was speaking at a conference and um, I suddenly panicked before I went on stage because I wanted to highlight it as a book for people to read but couldn't actually pronounce it. So Mary, I hope I've got it right today. Um, So this all seems a bit bizarre, so close to Christmas in the midst of a pandemic, but when I saw this book um, being highlighted on Twitter as one to share, um, it so deeply affected my work that I couldn't resist but put myself forward as someone to comment. Um, So a bit about me, I'm an education consultant. Um, I left education because I really wanted to bring about change in the system um, really, really passionate about um, creating an education system which is less driven by standards and more driven by quality education for young people and more in sync with modern society. Um, and one thing I wanted to highlight about that was what happens is if you have a particular area of interest, for me it's creativity and innovation in education, um, you can kind of create an echo chamber for yourself in the text that you read. Um, so I've read a lot of business texts. I'm really into anybody who's um, written anything about innovation and innovation techniques, curriculums from around the world that are really forward thinking. Um, but on that journey, I, I kind of lost touch with what quality in education really was. Um, I was um, really interested in the new framework and what it was offering and, and my it's Um, book came along with that process and so I sat down to read it and I was absolutely blown away with how deeply it affected my views of how education should be and that I'd lost touch really with some of the essence of what good quality teaching and learning is um, and the power of knowledge and so um, I was lucky enough to, to meet Mary recently, obviously remotely, and to um, share this with her because it really has deeply changed my views on education. Um, I'll highlight a few of the areas, but, but do read it. Um, I know a lot of people contributed, so I'm not going to go on forever. So for me, um, Mary is the voice of wisdom. This is a really well-balanced text um, with... Um, coverage on a lot of areas from subject knowledge through to differentiation through to leadership. Um, so I think I think it's just manages within one book to cover so many different areas. The key points for me, um, as I've already said, the importance of knowledge. Um, I was fascinated by the knowledge and skills debate um, for years. Um, and I've always felt that both are really key. Um, but for, for me, um, the, the importance of shaping one's knowledge and this being a really coherent process wasn't something I'd really paid proper credence to. Um, I also reflect painfully on my, um, seventies and eighties upbringing, um, being in the state system, terrible education, very creative, very exciting, 
very engaging, but if you ever have me on a pub quiz team, then you will lose um, or you'll, you'll, you'll win despite me. So um, my knowledge is really poor and that has held me back in lots of areas and has really impacted on my confidence in certain situations as well and my understanding of the world in some areas. I, I'm working very hard to improve that, but the education system let me down by that regard. So knowledge is absolutely vital um, and the curriculum has been carefully constructed to, to have a broad and balanced knowledge that makes you world ready. And I think that and um, we need to sort of regain confidence in that, really. Um, coherence. Um, I am passionate about coherence. Much as I really, really want to strive for a more creative approach to what we do and to innovate education, I still think we need to make things clear. I go into lots of schools where they have really amazing, engaging, exciting curriculums. But when you actually look at the substance of what the students have learned, they've probably had a lot of great learning experiences but their knowledge hasn't been shaped in the way it could have been um not saying that the, the learning itself had to be terribly different but there, there's no substance behind it in terms of coherence and i think that mary highlights this really well the importance of really solid planning to make sure your curriculum is coherent and coherent over time i think that's really key I also love the way that Mary brings up the differentiation debate. This has bothered me for a long time, that children are pigeonholed and their achievement is almost already decided before they've begun. Um, and I think that she she really um, respectfully brings that up and discusses it in a way that really does make you think um, about the way in which work is differentiated and knowledge is disseminated down through through the different ability groupings um, and I think that it really does need lead to some deep thoughts um, and equally challenge I love the way Mary brings up the concept that challenge should be a part of daily learning um, and it, it isn't a really hard lesson challenge is what we should be working on all the time we should be in our challenging area of learning and and mary actually and i have talked about this recently i think it's um a, a really really important area to be considered more is how challenging daily learning is for for our students and pupils um Another thing that was a key takeaway for me was um, at the time of reading, I was really passionate about developing oracy and speaking in schools. Um, and she brought that up, but she also brought something that I'd been considering for some time up about listening. Um, so I do think that listening is really, really key. Um, a, a skill that we, we don't play proper credence to is listening, processing, considering, and then responding. Um, Quite often when we're in a discussion, we wait for our turn to speak. And I think I uh, really love the way that Mary brings up the importance that, that speaking go, does go along with listening and listening is a skill in itself. Um, so you have to take into consideration that when I read this book, I was fairly left in my views of education and what I was striving to do. So at the time, it wasn't the easiest read, although it did affect me deeply. And I, you know, had to swallow my pride somewhat and, and realise a lot of what Mary was saying was true, if not all of it. Um, but 
one of the areas that really warmed me um, whilst reading the book was the hidden curriculum. Um, there's a real misconception around what curriculum is, and Mary talks about this, the fact that the national curriculum, um, people assume it almost is the curriculum, and actually the curriculum is everything you do in schools to shape your young people. And the hidden curriculum um, is a kind of lost in some schools in that she talks about values being laminated and stuck on the wall, and actually values should live through your curriculum. Um, and there's so much that we could be doing, that we want to be doing, that actually given the time to sit down and think about, we can make part of our daily teaching and learning in schools. And I think that hidden curriculum needs lots of unpicking when you're looking at your intent and considering what it is that's right for your community, what is it that they need. Um, and I was really pleased to see that, that Mary had put that in there because I think it is, that is the heart of a school. Um, the other area that I talk a lot about and uh, it, it really um, has been a powerful learning experience for me is, is going back to concepts and the science of learning. Um, and actually, um, if you don't have a really strong understanding of what the concepts of your subject are, um, to be able to skillfully teach um, your students is really hard. Um, now, this is less relevant perhaps to secondary school where you've trained in your subject, but in primary, um, we can really lose touch with what the essence of each subject is. And, and following learning this from Mary, I, I spend time in schools going right back to the con concepts of the national curriculum, looking at those first pages in the national curriculum and thinking, picking apart, what does this really mean um, for this subject? And how will this shape how I teach it? And how will this shape what I choose to teach as well? Because... Um, I know Mary talks a lot about, not just in the book, but in her general um, education views, she talks about the fact that um, it's really, really hard that we consider that we've got to teach everything on the curriculum. And actually, it's best to do less really well than it is to be able to just tick it all off. And so if you have a really strong understanding of the concepts that you're developing, that deepens that confidence you have to make those choices about what it is this year that's going to have to just drop off and what the main focus is going to be. Um, and finally, um, beautiful work. Um, I just love this because Mary talks about um, the difference between having a worksheet and, and and switching up to to a really beautiful activity um, and deepening those learning experiences and um, the danger for me with knowledge-based curriculums um, and, and which is what you could air towards after reading this text is that actually um, it all becomes rather boring and um and Mary manages to get a beautiful chapter in there called Beautiful Work. And, and I refer to beautiful learning in my speaking where, you know, just because something's really coherent and really clear, that doesn't mean that, that teaching and learning shouldn't be a really beautiful, engaging and memorable, memorable experience. And so that's it from me. Um, I suspect once this is out, it will be after Christmas. So I hope despite everything that you've had a lovely time and um, I, I look forward to a wonderful 21. I hope that that's been helpful for you. Thank you so much. And um, yeah, I hope to do this again soon. Thank you. Bye-bye. You're listening to From Page to Practice. 
join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag pagepracticepodcast. Thank you, Rachel, for your honest reflection on this book and how it's affected your own thinking. I'm really pleased that you decided to take part in today's episode. Finally, we are going to hear from Sam. Hello, my name's Sam Pullen. I teach history and politics in a secondary school in North London. And before I start talking about a specific part of Mary's amazing book, just a couple of points about the thing in general. Firstly, I really like it because it's direct, it's to the point, and it's full of home truths, which seems to me a little bit like Mary herself, um, having seen her talk and sat um, at the same table as her at lunchtime during the conference, um, incidentally on the same day as I sat quite near Daisy Christodoulou, so what a day that was for me. This seems to me to be a bit what Mary is like in general. Um, there was one particular bit which made my toes curl with embarrassed self-recognition as she wrote about random worksheets which have a tendency to fill a space rather than being part of a coherent whole. And oh my goodness, have I been guilty of creating a number of those, as colleagues past and previous will attest. Another thing I particularly like about the book is that it has very short chapters. And that's not just because I have a very short attention span, but also it's because it allows you to pick up the book, read a chapter, get some of those direct to the point home truths and put them into practice. Generally, three to five pages will do it, um, including footnotes. The one exception to this is the, by Mary's standards, war and peace-esque chapter on curriculum leadership, which extends to a giant nine pages. And it's actually that chapter that I'm going to focus on for the next few minutes. In the very first part of this chapter, Mary lays out the role of the curriculum leader. She says the name of the game is to know what the the curriculum is for, how it's constructed and what content is covered. Um, This sounds pretty tough, I think, and that's because it is. But happily, this being Mary's book, there are lots of really helpful practical tips to allow you to get into that role and get across what looks like an impossible chasm between your knowledge and the knowledge that your heads of department have and the questions they want in order to help them do their jobs better. And there are three things, I think, that she focuses on specifically, which I found most helpful. First of all, she talks about um, the kind of questions that you might, as a curriculum leader, ask of heads of department when trying to help them to do their job as well as they can. Now, it's really difficult um, for a specialist in one subject to talk coherently and knowledgeably and challengingly to a specialist in a different subject. My disciplines, as I've said, are history and politics. So it's hard for me to have conversations with, let's say, the head of chemistry about whether their chemistry curriculum is really doing what it ought and whether they are challenging the students properly because I just don't know. I've no idea if a particular topic is good in year eight or year nine or year 10. I just don't ha- I don't even have, as it happens, a chemistry O level, which gives you a little insight into how ancient I am. Um, so what uh, she does, Mary, in conjunction with um, a blog by Christine Council, which she references called The Dignity of the Thing. If you've not come across Christine, I always used to refer to her only half jokingly as the high priestess of history. Um, she's now taken on a role, as it seems to me, the goddess of educational wisdom. And she is brilliant. And her blog is extraordinarily good and helpful. And between what Mary's written and what Christine has written, and in fact, of course, I went on run by Christine and Summer Turner, um, I think these are the kind of questions that can really help um, a curriculum lead to get under the skin of what's going on in departments they perhaps don't have first-hand knowledge of. For example, you could ask the head of department, 
why are you tackling this topic in year eight as opposed to year seven or year nine? What is it about doing it in year eight that makes it the right time to do it? Similarly, that piece of knowledge you've just been teaching, what is its curricular role? In other words, what does teaching this now, say in year seven, help with when somebody gets to year eight or year nine or even beyond? Equally, what value will that knowledge have when you're with your pupils continuing education immediately, so next week, but also six months hence, two years hence, even beyond that? So really thinking hard with the subject leader about what they're teaching and why they're teaching it and why they're teaching it when they are as well. Similarly, what of your knowledge is core knowledge and what is hinterland knowledge? And if those are new terms to you, I really urge you to read Christine's blog on that. Mary's sort of jumps off from that, but Christine's is the bedrock. And I really think that that would be a good recommendation. Another thing that Mary talks about is that curriculum leaders should be able to view the day-to-day -day content being taught in their schools as fundamental to their job. Now, this I found quite an interesting idea that I, as a curriculum lead or an erstwhile curriculum lead, ought to know exactly what's happening in, say, geography and French and religion and philosophy and so on and so on. Quite a big ask, but she is pretty insistent that this is what you should do. What she does say, though, as helpful advice, is that it's better to start with a few topics and do these well and build on them over time rather than trying to do everything in a subject. And this is helpful advice you can give to all your, your subject leads or heads of department that doing a few things well is perhaps better than trying to do everything or lots of things. And this would, of course, make your job as curriculum lead a little bit easier, but that's not the primary purpose. The primary purpose is to make sure that the lessons work and the children come out with a, as good an education as they can. Um, and this was brought home to me um, this morning, actually, while I was uh, self-righteously out running um, and even more self-righteously righteously listening to Radio 4 while I was going and watch it come on but start the week. Um, one of the great pleasures of being on holiday is you get to listen to radio that you don't normally have time to. Um, and they were talking about the death of Thomas Beckett, which, um, as I'm sure you know, happened in 1170 when the Archbishop of Canterbury was murdered at his altar by three knights, sent or possibly not sent by Henry II. Um, that's a whole contentious issue, which um, you can come to my lessons to find out about. But um, the point of it was that it contained quite a lot of in-depth information, which I didn't know, really fascinating things, like the fact that Thomas may well have, in effect, staged his own execution, knowing that his, his time was, was coming. Um, he made sure that uh, he was at his altar in his finery, possibly holding a psalter as well, when the knights burst in such that he could be martyred at his altar in his robes. It never occurred to me before that for the knights to find him, just burst in and find him at random at his altar was quite remarkable. Now, this is something that you probably haven't got time to go into if, like at my school, you're doing Beckett as part of a wider uh, investigation into the power of church and the power of state um, in the Middle Ages. But what a fascinating little detail that is, and whether actually he counts as a martyr at all, given that he wasn't killed for his faith, but for his church. And these are great things you could really drill down on if you had a bit more time to do Beckett. So doing less, better, might well be a useful mantra for you in your school. 
And finally, um, Mary also talks about ensuring that teachers have plenty of time to plan and develop their subject knowledge. And she suggests some ways that you might do that, including perhaps reducing the marking load. And she cites the work of Andrew Percival and Claire Seeley in doing that. And we've, we'll all have seen lots of things about whole class feedback and other techniques you can use to reduce the marking load without reducing its impact. And maybe that will leave you with a little bit more time to do your subject specific CPD, which seems to be increasingly viewed as better than generic CPD. What she recommends is that leaders in this area make sure that um, planning takes that kind of thing into account and that you develop a, a CPD programme for the year. So rather than just offering piecemeal CPD as and when it arrives or occurs to you, if you can plan out over the year or at least a term what's going to come, people can plan their time accordingly. And we did this at my school. Um, we planned, we tried to do a year, but initially started a term by term approach where we, we were doing some of our own internal CPD and we knew of certain courses that were coming up and we put them all on a timetable and we split it up into sort of horizontally by time and vertically by the sort of person it might attract. So we had certain um, internal inset which was specifically aimed at our NQTs, for example, although anybody could turn up, and others that were was aimed at um, aspiring senior leaders, another at HODs, another at budget holders. So you could look down your column and see what might be coming up for you. Obviously, you could kind of pick and mix a little bit as well, but it allowed you to really program in what your CPD was going to look like for the year. And I'd really recommend that as a way forward if you've got the time and capacity to do it. I'd also like to pay uh, respects to Nick Dennis, from whom I completely nicked the idea and indeed the template, but uh, he's a giving kind of guy, so I'm sure he won't mind. So that's that. I really found that chapter helpful and I hope you do too. Thank you very much. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. Thank you, Sam. I found your reflection enjoyable to listen to and you rose to the challenge of fitting your reflection into the 10 minute limit. (laughs) So that's it from Page to Practice in 2020. The first episode of 2021 are walkthroughs, connect the dots, closing the reading gap and how learning happens, all of which I am still in search of reader contributions for. Please get in touch to share, especially about walkthroughs, which is due out around the 10th of January. I've now got all the books I need to fill the schedule up to the end of the summer term, including a couple more Chartered College Impact specials, so do keep an eye out for that. I'll let you know once I've set all the dates and contacted the authors. As per usual, your support from Page to Practice is greatly appreciated, so please do keep subscribing and listening. It also really helps others to find the podcast if you pop a review on iTunes or whichever platform you use. I'm particularly grateful to the people who have been keeping my coffee funds topped up and I really appreciate the lovely feedback you've been giving me there. Finally, do share the podcast with friends and colleagues. I'll really appreciate it and hopefully they will too. See you in 2021. Bye. You've been listening to From Page to Practice. Don't forget to join in the conversation using hashtag pagepracticepodcast. Alternatively, to suggest a book or article or volunteer to contribute to an episode, visit learninglinguist.co.uk forward slash page practice podcast. Thanks go to Kevin McLeod of Incomtech.com for use of the tracks Cheery Monday and Fuzzball Parade, which are licensed under Creative Commons.